Hello, and welcome back for another Toasted Tale with me, Jim. I'm really happy you decided to join me today around the fireside. If, like me, you enjoy hearing stories, then you've come to the right place. I think there are interesting stories in every subject. They just need someone to find and share them. In this podcast, we're going to take a random subject and use it as a seed to do some research And in that time, I'm going to do my best to find a story that hopefully you and I can find enjoyable. So let's bring in the subject randomizer, give it a spin, and find out what today's topic will be. Okay, so today it's landed on the Yasser River. Now just for clarity, I am no expert on the Yasser River, and I've actually never visited I'm just a guy who likes finding interesting stories in random subjects and learning some things about them along the way. So as not to keep you all waiting around, I've actually done the research for the Yasser, and I'm really excited to share with you what I've found. So let's get to it. The Yasser River is a waterway that rises in French Flanders and enters the Belgian province of West Flanders. This then flows through the Gazenport, which is a big centralised canal system, and into the North Sea at the town of Newport. The source of the river starts in the Nord Department of France in the north, and flows through many towns along the way. After around 30 kilometres in France, it leaves the country and enters Belgium, to complete the remaining 48 kilometre course, flowing through Dixmoyde and out into the North Sea at Newport. Now Belgium is quite a low country, not in any rankings or anything like that, it's a lovely country really, but it is 10th in the list of countries in the world threatened by rising sea levels due to global warming. This means their average height of their land in proportion to the sea level is really quite low. According to one American study that used satellite information to predict future trends, 6% or 619,000 people in Belgium alone live below the sea level currently, and this number unfortunately is predicted to rise if global warming continues. Now, people in Belgium, and more specifically those in the Flemish region in particular, are aware of this, and they know that the sea level could rise by as much as 30 centimetres by the year 2100. And to be fair to them, they do have a grand plan ready to counteract this. This will cost in the region of 300 million euros, and involves reinforcing dikes and raising beaches to prevent the additional water from reaching inland parts of the country. One of the interesting things about when you have rivers in a country is that they are likely to flood as well, in particular when waters rise. And when I was doing the research, it felt like the rivers and seas in and around Belgium were foreign invaders that were able to weave their way inland and cause havoc within the country, even for those places that aren't even near the sea. The main defence that countries like Belgium have against this are water dikes and sluices, 
which are used to control the water within their borders. And countries like Belgium have been doing this for years, and engineers have been using such methods for centuries to create more habitable land like this and hold back their water-based invader. And to be fair, fighting against nature has been one of humans' greatest struggles throughout our history. But what happens if the fight is not against nature but more against people? Well, in that case, I think we probably should look at the curious predicament it is to be a small country surrounded by larger and more powerful ones. Not only are you forever at risk of just being absorbed by a neighbour, but also when these neighbouring countries start itching for a fight, often with little regard, they take their armies and traipse them through your lands. And as you're the smaller nation, there isn't much you can do but wave them through as they pass and go to fight usually your other powerful neighbour, who is the real enemy of your enemy. In 1914, Belgium faced such an enemy, and this time it wasn't the sea, but instead men with guns and artillery looking for blood and conquest. World War I was a global conflict that touched parts of every continent, but mainly focused on the power struggles between the major players in Europe at the time. Now, the First World War is an incredibly complex conflict, and you could fill a whole series of podcasts just looking at this war. So, to oversimplify and give you some context, there are a lot of major countries in Europe at this time who were either already global superpowers, or in the process of becoming their own superpower. And this was through the ongoing, fast-paced developing industrialization and modernization that was sweeping the modern world. Germany was still a baby in terms of countries, and was only 43 years young at this point. This was after its unification from being separate states into one country, and because of this late start to the party, it was fast trying to catch up so as to rival and be strong enough to stand on its own two feet around its powerful neighbours, such as, in the west, the mighty France with its global empire, and to the east, Russia, the slumbering giant, who itself was stirring and developing itself into what many feared would be an unstoppable force. Now, it wasn't just Germany who was concerned, France was similarly perturbed by the way Germany was rising up and becoming this strong nation in Central Europe. France and German states previously had regular conflicts with each other, and each side had its fair share of victories and losses. Recently, however, in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, which was fought between France and the Germanic state of Prussia, the French had lost. And so there's great fear around the French people that a now unified Germany would be far too powerful for them to handle. And so France's previous dominance on mainland Europe was definitely under threat, which made them 
inflate themselves to make themselves stronger and also look with concern to their emboldened neighbour to the east. To help ease tensions between these rivaling nations, there were a number of delicate diplomatic pacts that were happening around Europe at this time to keep all of these concerned countries in balance so effectively war didn't break out. And these linked nations together so as to make it almost impossible for one country just to go to war with another for fear of bringing in a whole lot of other nations into the party as well. So, for example, Germany was in a defensive agreement called the Triple Alliance with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Italy. And on the other side, Russia, France and Great Britain had their own coalition called the Triple Entente. Now at this time, Britain was observing the political manoeuvrings on mainland Europe and was hesitant to get involved because it had its own big empire that it had to maintain and it had a lot on its plate already. It did have one piece of rope that was connecting it to all of the drama that was kind of bubbling under the surface in Europe though. A stick of dynamite, if you will, which if lit would drag them into any potential conflict that occurred. This was part of the Treaty of London, which was signed in 1839 where Great Britain committed to protecting the country of Belgium if it was ever invaded. Now that will become very important in a little bit, but just to sum up, we have economic, technological and diplomatic areas of tension already springing up throughout Europe. So what's one more piece of tension, eh? Let's throw in some racial tension in there as well. In the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's a very delicate balance of knitted together national identities, oftentimes with their own languages and cultures, ruled by the Habsburg dynasty in Vienna at the very top. And in this empire, they had a mix of Czechs, Rufines, Slovenes, Slovaks, and Romanians. On top of all that, to add even more complexity to the mix, some of these nations had more prominent Slavic roots, and others had more Germanic roots. And this kind of heritage-based and also nation-based tension would often cause conflict, as the two groups had, up until this point, had a tricky previous relationship. And there were two almost ancestral homelands of the Slavs and the Germanic peoples. At the time, many thought that Russia was known as the ancestral home of the Slavs, and so drew support from Slavic peoples from outside of their borders, but also created animosity against more Germanically ruled nations like Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And both Germany and the Austro-Hungarians were broadly neighbours with Russia, and so you can now understand maybe a bit better why those two nations were in alliance and favoured this kind of coalition, just in case Russia decided to fully mobilise, call all Slavic peoples to its banner, 
and start flooding into its nearby neighbours. It was, in fact, the ethnic tensions within the Austro-Hungarian Empire which proved to be the tinder that would light the fuse to start one of the most destructive wars of the early 20th century. Whilst on a tour of Sarajevo, modern-day capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, current heir to the whole Austro-Hungarian Empire, was shot and killed alongside his wife by the assassin Gavrilo Princep, a Bosnian Serb and member of the group called Young Bosnia, who seeked to end Austro-Hungarian rule in Bosnia and Herzegovina. To look into the thought processes of Princep, during his trial for the assassination, he stated that, quote, I am a Yugoslav nationalist aiming for the unification of all Yugoslavs. And I do not care what form of state, but it must be freed from Austria." End quote. Princep was sentenced to 20 years in prison, the maximum sentence for his age. It could be argued that if we were to look at individuals who had the greatest impact in the last 250 years, then surely this man could be at the top of your list. There was a lot that happened following this assassination, as you can probably imagine, and all the events that happened could probably fill many hours of podcast. But just to simplify, to able to fit it into this toasted tale, the Austro-Hungarian Empire cracked down hard on the Slavs within their empire, and also declared war on Serbia, due to the Austro-Hungarians' perceived link with Serbia and the radical groups that were causing trouble within their borders. They took this action against their southern neighbour on the 28th of July 1914, in response to the assassination, which of course drew the stares from Russia, whom Serbia were allies with, and whom Russia had promised to protect. Within one month of this occurring, Germany declared war on Russia, Germany declared war on France, Britain declared war on Germany, Austria declared war on Russia, Japan declared war on Germany, and then Austria declared war on Japan. That is certainly a lot of declaring, and a lot of war that was just about to blow. It seemed that the European pot was about to boil over, and all it needed was that one last push of an assassination to go. Now let's talk a little bit about strategy. The main plan that Germany deployed was something called the Schlieffen Plan, which was, once again, in simple terms, because really going into it is is crazy complex, but it was to throw their greatest military strength, their haymaker, if you will, at France, who they saw as their immediate threat. The hope would be that within six weeks, they could smash the French. And then, once they've regrouped, consolidated, very quickly turn around, move east, and apply their strength to Russia, who they thought would still be warming up and mobilising. 
But where would the Germans attack? There was no easy way into France. As we mentioned earlier, decades of previous conflict had wised up both nations to create strong defensive structures along the border between France and Germany. The soft entry point that the Germans saw was to take their armies through neutral Belgium. Now, I think the Germans believed the Belgians would just let them go through and do this plan, but this was not okay with the Belgian people or their high command. And also, this really concerned the British, who did not want this as well. Now, the Germans warned the Belgians they'd be doing this, on the night of the 3rd or the 4th of August 1914, despite being told they wouldn't be allowed through by Belgian High Command and also being ordered for their armies to halt their advance, they proceeded with their plan and marched 1.5 million German soldiers into Belgian territory. And to give you an idea of how lopsided this battle was going to be, the Belgians only had around 320,000 fighting troops to stand up against the onslaught of German troops into their land. They were no pushovers though, and they fought tooth and nail, stubbornly against the Germans, only to retreat when they were being overrun, to reposition and fight again. Even with all the passion and nationalistic vigour, you can't hope to stop the advance of that many troops. French and British soldiers and sailors covered the retreat of the Belgian army, whilst their major cities fell into German hands. And as the remaining Belgian force fell back, to the star of this podcast, the Yasser River, what followed was the last stand by the Belgian troops. The Battle of the Yasser followed, which is where the Belgians fought to defend the Yasser Canal, using the waterways as a natural obstacle against the German invaders. On the 18th of October, the German 4th Army, led by Duke Albrecht, began attacking the defenders with heavy artillery bombardments all along the Belgian lines. With the help of British warships off the coast, they were able to bombard the German lines and hold them back for a time. But eventually, even with French reinforcements, the Germans were able to form a bridgehead across the river and continue the advance and the attack. With Belgian resistance weakening, and the king, Albert I, fearing a German breakthrough in the direction of Dunkirk or Calais, the Belgians took a drastic step and opened the canal locks at Newport on the 25th of October. The defence that had kept the nation habitable for so many years was being used as a weapon itself. The result was a gradual flooding of the low countries between the canal and the railways. This meant that the German 4th Army were forced to retreat, and on the 29th of October, they transferred their whole offensive to a different location at Ypres. Now, 
some of the battles at Ypres that would happen throughout the rest of the war were some of the most deadly and violent times throughout the conflict. But through this action, even though most of the Belgian territory fell to the Germans, Newport remained in Belgian hands throughout the war. And this roughly equated to the Belgian people being able to keep hold of 5% of their territory, rather than losing everything, by removing the safety barriers which in peacetime allowed people to live in the country, and using those against their enemy, and unleashing the rivers and seawater against their invaders. If it wasn't for the Yser River, and the Belgium's knowledge of how to use it, Belgium as a nation, and the people who were Belgian, may have been washed away from the continent forever. Thank you for spending your time with me today around the fireside. I really enjoyed learning a little bit more about the Yser River. It's incredible to me that something probably so calm and relaxing nowadays can have such a vibrant past and be a part of one of the most destructive historical events in the last 200 years. If you enjoyed listening to the Toasted Tale podcast today, then the best way for you to stay updated when new episodes are released is by following me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at podcasttale, which is where I post all new episodes and any other information I find interesting. So follow me at Podcast Tale for more. And if you'd like to be ready for the next episode, then I'll be back here every Tuesday and Thursday at 6pm GMT. Your company will, of course, be greatly welcomed. I hope you all have a lovely rest of day, and I'll speak to you all again soon for another toasted tale around the fireside.